0: Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. That's right. Yes, indeed we do, Danny.
1: Hello, Tim. Hello. It's great to be back in the studio oh, with you. It's great to be back. You're looking well.
0: Thank you. Thank if you. not a little sweaty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing the camera's not on for this part. <laughs> Very sweaty. Yeah. yeah. It's a hot studio. It is. It we like is. Like to crank
1: the heat up all it's, the way. It's small and it's hot and if we have the air conditioning on, you can hear it. Yeah. So we keep it off. It's true. Yeah. So anyway, you remember a few weeks ago I hit you with some knowledge. i you hit me with knowledge more than on a more weekly, than you want. Yeah. <laughs> more on a frequent
0: basis. Yeah. Well yeah. I
1: got the mysterious newsletter that oh. had that, that taught us. I don't even remember what it taught us.
0: Um What did it teach us?
1: Not important. But it's (laughs) back, baby. The the newsletter's back to drop some more knowledge that that I am going to transfer on to you. All right, great. So, Danny, you're familiar with honey, of course.
0: Oh, we learned about pumpernickel.
1: Pumpernickel. Yeah. Devil farts. And you know, the funny thing is, (laughs) I remembered tying it full circle back to Caddyshack. Spalding exclaims devil farts as he is missing the ball on the club when he's playing with uh, his grandpa, I thought he says double farts. I'm i think it's i think there's a double farts and there's devil farts there's <laughs> rat farts he says all sorts of crazy all sorts shit. of brown breezes yeah so anyway so honey you're familiar with it you've I had have. tyranny honey i have and my dad uh good
0: enough to bring tears to your eyes tears
1: to your eyes tyranny honey tyranny honey all right very clever um but yeah my dad keeps like four boxes so produces a small amount of uh, honey that we harvest every, every Those fall. boxes are
0: mighty sticky
1: they are mighty sticky and heavy because of all the honey and uh, wax inside of them right. but anyway so did you know that honey does not expire I did not know that I did know that but I didn't know why and that's where the newsletter comes
0: in. <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> with the knowledge yeah because I
1: guess like when they when they opened up uh, King Tut's tomb in 1923 they had like sealed containers of honey inside of it and the archaeologists tasted it and it was still sweet hmm and uh so it turns it's out risky that, play yeah <laughs> very risky yeah in 1923 they weren't as tuned in back then but <laughs> yeah upton sinclair hadn't dropped knowledge yet yeah or had he
0: no he hadn't yet okay not by 23
1: yeah okay around that time though i think it was the jungle like,
0: yeah the jungle was it was about chicago wasn't it like 40s 50s when was the jungle
1: well now you gotta look it up yeah, now you're up. about to drop some knowledge right back on me <laughs>
0: Well, anyways, you look that up. Oh, wow. expl- um, the jungle is 1906. Wow, I oh, should have known better. Tim schooled me hard. Wow. I got like double, double schooled on this thing. <laughs> All right, so the reason it doesn't
1: expire is because it has so little water in it. Okay. I guess like 80% of honey is sugar, and then like 18% of it is water. Hmm. And so have not having that moisture in there makes it difficult for bacteria and microorganisms to form and survive. And it's also so thick that oxygen can't really get in, which could also lead to bacteria growth. And then the third thing is that there's a special enzyme in the bee's stomachs called glucose oxidase, hmm. and when that mixes with nectar to make honey, the enzyme produces an acid and hydrogen peroxide that lower the sweetener's pH level, and they also kill off bacteria.
0: Wow. So you can have
1: that old honey in the back of your cupboard, Danny. Wow, that's wild. Um, it is
0: wild. Hmm. You know what also doesn't go bad? What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Having a conversation with this
1: week's guest. (laughs) That's maybe the best transition we've had yet. It's so good. (laughs) Well, of course we're talking about Michael (laughs) Kaiser. And Michael Kaiser kind of has a a two-pronged career. We've got two agencies that work kind of in tandem, a lot of crossover. Um, So we've got Feel Goods, which is uh, like branding and uh, a consultancy for... um, because michael calls them liquids the beverage community yeah Uh, and then there's also good beer hunting which is more the editorial side that uh kind of covers trends and 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 products emerging in the
0: market yeah where michael kind of built his reputation as like a beer expert Mm -hmm. and talking to all sorts of people in the beer world very knowledgeable yeah Um, and it seems like
1: it's kind of leaning more towards ciders now he's doing a lot more work in the cider world which yeah. is emerging, you know, becoming a, a bigger thing.
0: It was cool to learn like his perspectives on the industry and
1: his insights. Um, yeah, I feel like I've, I've really picked his brain on a lot of uh, the like the business side of beverage, right. which I think like a lot of people are home brewers and, and it's a hobby and they maybe want to scale it. But, you know, you need to have that the, the knowledge to actually make it into a viable business and, and not a hobby. And uh, so Michael can help people t- come from concept all the way up through distribution He is a wealth of knowledge, as you will learn. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Michael Kaiser.
0: Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks
2: for having me. Thank you for coming in. Yeah. So what's up? What's new? Oh my goodness uh the last time we checked in it's been a while yeah you've been you're yeah.
0: traveling right
2: yeah, well, not for a while like most people, but uh, recently been down to Houston working with a cider maker down there called City Orchard, which we're really excited about, and then California working with Martinelli's. Oh, cool. Uh, a lot of Apple-related things huh. going on in our world right now. What's
0: Martinelli's doing?
2: Uh, well, there's a, they're a fourth generation handing it off to the fifth generation of the family. Wow.
0: Um, Are they which, still keeping that squat bottle, the iconic?
2: Well, yes. That's the short answer. The long answer is, like, Getting raw materials through today's supply chains and, like, keeping things in stock is, like, really difficult. Hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And they also had sort of a viral TikTok moment where uh, somebody recorded a video biting the plastic version of the bottle, of the little Apple bottle. And when you bite it, it makes an uncannily realistic... Apple crunching sound. Oh my huh. God. And somebody did this on a TikTok and it went nuts, and their sales shot through the roof. And so they were just like out of stocks everywhere, and Whoa. they've just been trying to keep up with the TikTok demand. Ever I didn't since. even know
0: there was a plastic version of that bottle. Yeah,
2: there is. I... There's a yeah. There's a plastic version and the glass version.
1: Uh, they that's both look so, pretty wow. similar. That's like that's so brilliant. It had to be accidental. It was,
2: <laughs> it was completely like accidental. No <laughs> packaging yeah. designer yeah. would come up. No, with it has to do with a an oxygen barrier in the double wall between the plastics that um when you know after you've opened it or something like that like the they can push against each other and when you do it with your teeth it's like so specific uh, that it just creates Whoa. this weird noise and it sounds just like biting an apple that's um, amazing that so, I mean, everybody under the age of 25 already knows all of this that's all like but yeah. i'm someone performing yeah. I mean, a couple yeah. of old yeah. men right the now news
0: has been broken to <laughs> us i think our
2: demographic <laughs> is 60 and
0: older yeah. <laughs> Um, so you're working on like helping them with brand? Like what is it? Yeah,
2: so we do what we call full definition concept development. So I have two partners now um, that I, I probably didn't have last time I talked to you. which do think uh, so. Ryan Burke, who is, uh, he was the founding cider maker of Virtue Cider, along with Greg Hall. And then he was uh, leading the Angry Orchard brand for the last few years. And so he's left to join me, so he does liquid strategy on like a variety of alcohol and non-alcohol products for us. Mm. And then uh, a former client of mine who's now become a partner of mine is a go-to-market strategist. So distribution strategy, uh, market strategy, uh, like developing pro formas for startups and helping like put together VC decks and things like that. So the three of us, and, and I lead up creative direction, so the three of us are sort of like the three skill sets you need to build something from scratch and turn it into a thing that you know it's like liquid in a can with a brand and a go to market strategy that you can put on somebody's desk and say if you say yes to this it can roll. Uh, we wanted to be able to take concepts that far for the last like 10 years we've been doing brand and packaging Mm -hmm. um are like a full service like incubator
1: essentially basically so how how early into the concept is ideal
2: for you man i mean we will always say the earlier the better yeah um in some cases that means they don't have a name Mm -hmm. they don't even know how they're going to make it they don't even know where they're going to make it they haven't even raised the money yet like we work with a lot of startups that way um, but we, we also work with people like Martinelli's who are like, we, you know, we need to start up an innovation pipeline for the first time ever. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, they're a huge company with a ton of legacy, but they don't know what they're going to make next. And the fifth generation is like begging for new uh, sort of innovative ideas. And so that's where we come in. So, And then if it is an idea from the ground
1: up, what kind of traits do you look for? Do you look for a successful entrepreneur who has built a brand?
2: Well, like what what kind of, uh, who's the ideal We partner? love product market fit. So if there's a functional space out there to fill that nobody else is filling, or if they are, they're not doing it in a brand forward way, or if they've got a good brand, but they don't have a liquid format that really fits that space. Like we try to like, we like to look at configuration of all of those pieces as like the way to win and have an unfair advantage. And sometimes it comes down to go to market strategy. Like yeah. if you're smarter about, you know, especially in the alcohol space, like tax taxes incentivized decision-making and so you know what what states you're going to play in and uh, how you're going to bring that alcohol in and like how you're going to fortify it or like what format you're going to put it in and like what you're going to call it like all of those things have different implications for the financial side of things Uh, and most people don't think that way Mm -hmm. Um, so being able to have that kind of thinking in-house is huge for us too so we just look for unfair advantage in in every regard um, if we're starting from scratch so is the the focus on apple products is
1: that because of your partner, or is that because you see a need Two or a growth totally in unique
2: that? scenarios. Uh, I mean, definitely. I mean, Ryan Burke's background as Angry Orchard Cider Maker is a huge influence mm-hmm. on the kinds of people that we end up talking to sometimes. Uh, and right now, he's definitely bringing a lot of apple juice into the house. Uh, but also, uh, Chase Brooks, uh, our go-to-market strategist partner, uh, he was a former cider maker. He's done other things as well. He's done hard seltzers and some other brands. Um, but yeah, that's, so part of that's coincidence. Martinelli's is really surprising to me because I was at CiderCon in um, Richmond, Virginia a couple of years ago, right, right at the end of maybe Omicron, and I wanted—I w- I was there to talk about the relationship between brand and format, right, like packaging format, and how the, sometimes they're inextricable from each other, or sometimes they're agnostic, but they all have an influence. And I'm talking to a bunch of cider makers in the room and I wanted to give some examples of somebody who had a really strong relationship between brand and format. I mean, the fact that you mentioned the apple bottle immediately is an example of like how strong Martinelli's format and brand is tied together, it's the best. but I didn't want to give a hard cider company an example in that crowd because mm. I was like, well, chances are that company's going to be in this crowd. and They're gonna be like, fuck you. You mm-hmm. got it all wrong. I don't know who you think you yeah. are. What do you, you know? And so I always try to avoid conflicts like that. Um, even if I think I'm right, and so I was like, "Well, Martinelli's is like related, relatable to this category of you know hard cider makers. They're probably not going to be in the room. I'll just use Martinelli's. I think it's a great example." And uh, and at the end of it, the last person waiting in line to talk to me uh, afterwards was uh, a new CMO sort of innovation leader uh, at Martinelli's, okay. <laughs> and she was like, "Hi, I'm from Martinelli's." I was like, "Oh shit," <laughs> um, but I. I, what I said was intriguing to her because it was very much in the vein of what she, the some of the problems that she was trying to solve, yeah. and she was starting to think about, and they were looking to get creative about. and she was like, "We need your help. And so that immediately turned into uh, a line of work for us with a super compelling like legacy company that uh, has over the course of their history launched, tons of different products like mm. super interesting stuff like do he, they have any alcoholic stuff they did in the past so okay. they, they, they originally had that? the hard a hard cider was the first thing they ever made oh whoa um but oh. prohibition knocked that out they also huh. made a brandy they had some other stuff mm. going on wow. back then um but since i would say you know they did bring back what's it's called 1868 hard cider but it was in a bottle had some old timey branding on it they make you know uh, a very very small amount uh in the california market so it was never been uh, a big portfolio play for them, but you know. But looking at alcohol is definitely one vein in which they're interested in recapturing some of that original spirit now. And they have so much credibility in the in the juice space that you know. How does that relate to uh, the hard cider thing and the Californianness of that brand? And there's just a lot. There's just a lot of exciting stuff to dig into. Yeah, there. a lot so, to
1: work with. But That's uh, cool.
2: but the non side is also super vigorous there in terms of concepts. Do they have know. just a Trevor, treasure trove of like old ads that you can work? Oh, with like, and well, stuff? they produced a gorgeous coffee table book. That just ha- like has all of the imagery of the old labels and like the stuff that they put on wooden crates and like That's uh, right. all the old packaging and uh, it's astonishing how many different products they've made over the over those years. Now we just know them as 100 percent apple juice. Uh, and we know that one thing um, mm-hmm. because it got so huge. But everything and else the along the way.
0: Sparkling apple the sparkling, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was yeah, my champagne uh, New Year's yeah. a treat
2: when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's become a treat for me now. Like, <laughs> if I started buying it for my kids, I'm like, this is
1: good.
0: Yeah, it's the way to appease <laughs> the kids.
1: So I remember when we were at Ali Ali one year, there was a, was it Angry Orchard that did a pairing with dinner? Probably. It was when, it, was, it would have been Ryan, yeah. Yeah, and I remember you gave a little speech about how Ciders maybe don't get the respect they deserve because people are like, oh, it's a sweet, oh it's a it's a girl drink or whatever. But I remember like being kind of amazed at the complexities of the flavors that we were like, they weren't sweet, they were really interesting. Yeah. What could you speak a little bit to that? What's what's going on with cider and why I guess what's the difference between the cider that people expect and then yeah. some of these more nuanced.
2: Angry Orchard is a great example because they make all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you get your mass market sort of crowd pleaser ciders that are, you know, uh, often from concentrate, but other small craft producers will do concentrate or not concentrate. Um, but all of them will be somewhere between sweet and dry, right? And the drier it gets, the more it kind of appeals to me as a beer drinker or a wine drinker. Um, and so that's sort of like the baseline. But the stuff that Ryan was producing at the Innovation Center for Angry Orchard up in Walden, New York, up in the Hudson Valley, all of that stuff is basically akin to low intervention or natural wine. I mean, that's it's closer, more closely related to that than it is you know the gas station ciders or the stuff mm-hmm. you pick up at jewel osco um and so i mean those things are just full of tannin they're full of like heirloom fruit uh they are often barrel aged or wood aged you know big fooders or vats or whatever and um and the complexity that he gets out of that just from a natural fermentation cycle like all of it's naturally fermented it's like super complex and then there's the blending side of it and so like it's way more akin to like a natural winemaker than anything else mm-hmm. uh and that stuff's just amazing like the um you know there's sometimes just like natty wine uh sometimes when people produce that stuff there can be a little va or um you know i can go through malolactic and like there can be some other weird stuff that like in proportion can be kind of interesting and fun um but the stuff that ryan and a few other folks like uh like eden cider up in vermont like that stuff's just exquisite like it's just amazing stuff that stands up next to any low intervention natty wine and where do you find these ciders because it's not easy no no, you got to go to the place usually. Yeah. Uh, but I would say because of COVID, a lot more of them have like cider clubs. Like I get a shipment from Eden Cider up in Vermont every oh, month. Oh, cool. Uh, and that's the way to get it for sure. And how does that work? Is it a rotating? Yeah, it's just like a monthly membership. Um, nice. And you have the option to throw extra bottles in there or whatever's coming up. And uh, I get a blend of Eden's um, like farmhouse eat ciders, which is ba- basically the natty stuff. Uh, and then some of the ice cider that she makes, which she's sort of famous for making, which is like, people, some people call it dessert wine. For me, it's just sort of like the nightcap, like in place mm. of a bourbon or something. Um, I love that stuff.
0: Do you have a cider program? What do you guys do?
2: Nobody's got a cider program. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, not a full-on <laughs> Well, a you cider should. Beer. Sounds not, like you should. Not like the Northmen or whatever. Um, uh, uh,
2: RIP. Uh, yeah. No, that doesn't exist. Publican used to have a great yeah. cider program. They, they had one cider on when we were there. But yeah. i was there because CiderCon was just in town and we just had like a huge dinner there and everybody was excited to see all the ciders again yeah. like they do every year they we have actually one. we did
0: a vandermill takeover one time uh. at scofflaw so we had like every vandermill uh on draft yeah but yes most of the time uh there's just yeah a few ciders at most yeah vandermill is a
2: great example of somebody that's yeah. doing the craft side of like you know really straight down the middle flavors that people are familiar with and excited about um but it's not like on the level of the the more low-intervention natty wine kind of stuff, which is, to me, that's just a whole different category. And yeah, it's so I mean, hard to get it.
0: There was at the time that, like, all the Basque ciders were big and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. still super delicious. Yeah. But, you know, things like go in and out of favor, the trends, yeah. you know, whatever. We did an
1: event with Seattle Cider maybe five years ago or so. Mm-hmm. It was very poorly attended, probably our fault. <laughs> but, but I do remember uh, Jim, my partner went uh, we did it had like bobbing for apples and Jim was the only guy who did it. Definitely pre-covid. Yeah. No no yeah, bobbing right. for apples anymore. No, nope, that's done. <laughs> so Michael, at this point, you're you're an ex- an expert in the beverage. Wait, was there more to that story? No, that was it. Just Jim went example. <laughs> so He got one. <laughs> he got finished one. it. Um, so you're, so you're, you have like a holistic understanding of this industry, but uh, I, it's like you, there's no there was no formal education for that. It's all experience. So yeah, I guess let's trace back and like when were you always interested in beer? How did how did the whole
2: thing start? No, I mean, if I in hindsight, beer was sort of always interesting to me, but I never really took it seriously in any way. I grew up in in pennsylvania right along the new york border just south of the finger lakes uh
0: big yingling country or it was
2: definitely yingling country and I during college yingling. it was like 25 cents a piece for a frosty mug on a thursday night at the uh at the fallon tap house downtown in lockhaven mm-hmm. uh, yeah i, I went mean, to school
0: in richmond virginia and when like you know yingling was like a pretty big thing Yep, before when sure. we were like drinking something
2: nicer than beast uh, yeah. it was like yingling you know? Beast. yeah i mean it was so regional back then uh at least in pennsylvania because like where i went to school in central pennsylvania it was all yingling uh but where i grew up in northern pennsylvania in the new york border it was all jenny um and so like i don't know we we didn't really grow up thinking about bud miller cores we grew up thinking about yingling and jenny like it was so yeah. regional and then you get into western pennsylvania it was all rolling rock um so i guess i like you know beer has always been part of like how i understood the world in a way but never really took it seriously um uh I got interested in beer sort of in a more serious way, I think, when I was working at an innovation agency, which is very directly related to what I do now. And I used to work in a bunch of uh, tech, so like Samsung, uh, some Nike stuff, uh, Apple, um, HP, telepresence stuff. I was working on a ton of like – I was doing a bunch of innovation strategy for tech. And then alongside that, we started doing more consumer packaged goods. Um, So a lot of snack foods and sodas and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then we got – Uh, we got miller uh, as a client this is back before they were miller cores which was before they were molson cores um and we were working on the miller light brand and our job every three months every quarter was to come up with a hundred new packaging concepts wow (laughs) where do you even start yeah i mean some of the ideas were real thin i'll I'll say that (laughs) Like,
0: yeah put it in a shoe
2: (laughs) a hat i mean yeah uh you know, but that's where that's where ideas for like the the mountains turning blue come from, and, yeah. and, and oh, some yeah. other sort of gimmicky stuff. And then like, is that your idea? The, the, the that came out of some of the. I, I don't know who can claim it because ultimately our stuff probably got buried in a file cabinet, and somebody else came up with it later. And, wow, it's like, so brilliant. It was theirs, but, Let's like, just pretend that packaging it was definitely. It you. could have been. It could have been. <laughs> you heard it here um, first, everyone. I remember there was the double pop top can. That was one of ours. What's uh, double pop top? So you know when you're pouring out a beer, uh, and it's real violently pouring out of a can because it doesn't have any backflow of oxygen. Oh. And it can be real foamy. Yeah, it was like a thing off to the side. Yeah. So you like you can turn it around and pop it on both sides so it's just like shoom, straight up. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, like real world changing important you know, important innovation. What's like the That's like what's, how
0: Tim shotguns a beer. <laughs> big part of it. Yeah the yeah. best
2: way to do it is with a
1: straw, yeah. right? Yeah, vent it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Everyone knows that That Danny. works. Uh, <laughs> what what are like What's like the gold standard for innovation on beverage packaging? Is there like one where everyone says uh, like, this so is number one?
2: The idea, so this was like way out of left field, but I was told it was the most innovative idea they'd ever seen. I was doing research on materials, and I found these people, this is, this is going to sound like nothing now, but at the time it was huge, was uh, somebody in Australia had developed a plant-based packaging material. Uh, it was crazy expensive um, to produce, probably fine now, but when it hits water, it'll dissolve at a certain temperature. And so we were proposing an idea where you would buy a case of beer, throw it in your cooler, and because it was cold and wet, the exterior packaging would just dissolve. Uh-huh. So you know that thing you have to do where you have to, like, open up the cooler with one hand and hold the case with your left hand and then, like, try and dig them out and dump them in there? And it's, like, this, like, you know, this fiasco is, like, what if you just threw it in the cooler and 10 minutes later you open it up and it's gone is and there, all there's left is cans? Was there residue left over or does it just completely to Well, disappear? we never got to the, got to the oh. point where we were, like, physically prototyping it. Um, but I called it the cooler bomb and the idea was it just and then it would just disappear wow, that's um, brilliant that would be sweet at the time I think it probably would have cost like three hundred dollars a case to <laughs> produce <laughs> <it>. that package <laughs> worth <laughs> it
0: yeah totally worth it
2: but I mean it's as goofy as that project was it gave me sort of firsthand experience with how gnarly the beer industry was because every time we would have an idea that got pretty close to conceptual development we would have to understand costs and how that thing was going to mm-hmm. be produced and what was legal right and like... Um, so we had to understand federal and state laws and three-tier laws and all these other things because some of that would relate to like how you would merchandise or promote it on premise. Uh, and so I just had to learn so much about the sort of value chain of beer. And that scared, that scared most people away from it because it was just like too complex and annoying. It felt like you couldn't do anything. And for some reason, I was drawn to that complexity and it just made me more interested in the beer industry. And at the same time, craft as sort of like a cottage industry was sort of having a resurgence. And so every time I traveled for work, I would find a new little, a new little tiny brewery somewhere. And I just loved how disparate those two sides of the industry were. Like, there's not a lot of industries where you can find, like, you know, you you don't find a lot of people making staplers at the craft level, right? And then (laughs) competing with big stapler. And like, that doesn't happen all that often. And so I, I just really loved the dynamics of it and like how weird it was and like how everybody had all these like really strong opinions. And I was just drawn to it. And when I worked at the next agency, they had AB as a client. Um, uh, so this was right after the InBev buyout of, okay. um, so there was the St. Louis team, which was the original team. And then there was the New York team, which was InBev. And, uh, that project was way more about actual product development. So like liquid strategy. Uh, and so I got a firsthand you know, seat to how they think about those things at that level of the industry. And I don't know that was. It's again, I was just, I just got more and more and more interested in it. And eventually I personally got called down to St. Louis, um. To ask to consult on their high-end portfolio at the time. It was all a bunch of imports like Lef and they had Shock Top in there and they had just bought Goose Island. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I left the meeting that day with my with my the partner, one of the partners of the business. And he was like, I don't know if you realize this, but like, I think you're on your way out. And I'm like, What are you talking about? He's like, You can just go do this for a little because he was in the room oh. with me and they, they called asking for me by name at the agency to come down and do this. And like I was just like nervous about the whole thing. And he's like dude they just asked you to sit in the room with the high end and all they cared about was your opinions they didn't care about mine at all there's no project in this for the agency like they just want to hire you and they just want my permission to let them hire you uh which immediately made me terrified i was like am i (laughs) losing my fucking job he's like listen like he's like take a gig with them consult with them personally for a couple months moonlight on it if there's a project in it for us great he's like or just go hang your own shingle and start a business. You could do this for a living. And had you ever considered that before? No, never had okay. never considered that. Who
0: was this person? You're a superior at Scott
2: the... Turnovitz was, he was one of the founding partners of gravity tank, which was an innovation agency here. Awesome so place to work. seems like he was a solid mentor or he, well, what's funny is like of all the partners, he's the one I had the least experience with. He was like on the, he was like on the product, like engineering side of yeah. stuff uh industrial design and like i was part of the strategy department so like how we even ended up together in that room i i can't really say it was kind of an odd moment for me but i think he was just like a good guy looking out and like you know he was somebody who's still very much in touch with his own entrepreneurial sort of like roots and i think he just read it emotionally and like just gave me the insight i needed to like be like holy shit yeah like i can do this um so So how long did it take for you to Spin off, I guess oh, a couple months later. I was I was out I was, awesome. I was working with a B and uh, I had my first startup client which was forbidden root right here in Chicago uh, And that's how good beer hunting was born. That's how the consulting side of it was born Yeah, the studio side of it and we've just been like developing brands and strategy ever since um,
0: yeah. so similar to Tim's question <clears throat> How long until you were at, you know At or above the thrush the income level that you were at when you made the decision to spin off
2: a oh, great question uh sorry to be gauche with the uh, no i mean that's very much how you're thinking about it when you're leaving because i was leaving with a i had my first kid on the way when i quit and like talk about a married kid on the way yeah um the the kid was leo uh he was due in seven months and so in my head i was like i've got seven months to get this shit rolling yeah the Um, new pregnancy yeah (laughs) a lot of pressure So, yeah, but I, but I did it. I got, it was like six months ish before, you know, I was probably back at the, at a competitive level with my salary. That's great. Um, I mean, at the time I'd saved, I don't know, I was a super poor kid that grew up like never, you you never leave a job, you know? (laughs) And so like, I think I saved up like two years worth of salary to like make it possible for me to even emotionally commit to it. Wow. um, Well, props on saving
0: up that much money.
2: Yeah. I was terrified. But, and then, and then, you know, six months later I was like, oh. That's and going to that be that okay. seems fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that seems fine. Um, how long
0: after you like split off and did your own thing did you like start? You know the podcast. Like, how does it all? All go that from stuff there?
2: started first. So okay. it was a blog. And, uh, okay. I was just blogging about the craft beer industry as I got to as I got to know it. Yeah. Um, from having worked, you know, I was working at those agencies, traveling a bunch, visiting places, getting to know people. Uh, And the more they understood about what I did for a living, the more they started thinking, like, oh, maybe I could use help with, like, planning. (laughs) You know, like, never done that before. Uh, And this is you know, this is when, if you opened up a craft brewery, you basically had already sold every ounce you made before you made it because there was so much demand. Mm -hmm. Um, And so nobody was thinking about planning or brand strategy or anything like that. Um,
0: When did the market get, like, saturated where that was not the case?
2: I would say... 2015-ish i think it started getting hard okay um that's when i heard people starting to say things like we're you know we're spending twice as much money to sell the same amount of beer now Mm um that's definitely i mean you know your mileage will vary based on what market you were in but that's definitely when people started to hit a growth cap that they didn't know was going to be there was there a
0: certain part of the country that had a higher saturation rate than others oh
2: my god yeah uh i mean california was really far along and all of that mostly because they already I mean they'd had a wave before anybody else had a wave in some ways um most urban areas I think had gotten pretty saturated pretty quickly yeah um by 2015 for sure maybe even a little earlier but
0: it's crazy to think that there was a period of time which you were making craft beer and it was just like a slam dunk yeah like it had already sold like you said before you even produced it and then when it swung the other way I can't even imagine how different like yeah. that yeah. would feel yeah. So was Big Beer
1: at that time looking for acquisitions, or were they like maybe we could start? Like, were was,
2: they yeah. It was definitely post like the the acquisition run that uh, Miller MillerCoors and AB went on. Uh, it was a little bit after that for sure. Um, but it was even a headwind for them. It's not like that. It's not like their acquisitions created that environment of like like making it harder now. Like they bought in right before it got hard, um, and it was actually kind of ill timed for them in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm um like they're experiencing right now they just laid off a bunch of people across all those little brands because like they they're struggling to compete and they're doing better than most of the category right now um the whole category is down like five six seven percent mm. um they're down like three and a half i think um, differences at- between which brands you're talking about there but no it just got it got real hard real fast uh, when people started trying to distribute outside of like the core two or three states they were in anybody who was spread you know that that you know inch deep mile wide strategy that a craft beer really loved for a while where you could send beer anywhere and people would buy it um when that stopped working it freaked out a lot of people because they hadn't really built deep enough roots at home like you look at somebody like new they're a top 12 brewery in the u.s wow. and they distribute in one state they're yeah, still in wisconsin right that's it like that's it oh like that's, that's how you go deep at home and like there's like pretty impressive for somebody that's going to you know they're going to be in a position to weather whatever market trends happen because of how deeply penetrated they are into every on-premise account uh, yeah. in wisconsin whereas like if you're spread over a course of eight states and all of a sudden nobody needs your non-local ipa mm-hmm. anymore you're in a world of trouble um that's yeah the so difference. that discipline i assume is a strategy
1: big time yeah yeah growing up on the Near the Illinois Wisconsin border, that was always a treat. You cross over and you go to Lake Geneva. You're bringing home. Yeah, like you're this. gonna stop at Woodman's and load up the yeah, trunk. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's right. <laughs> yeah, you know. That's right. Yeah. So what kind of during the, that acquisition phase, what kinds of multiples were people seeing on exits? Because I remember, I remember it like, the goose one
2: was like. A big one for Chicago. It was and the first they big. Were like, no, it was just the first one, really. I mean, there had been previous generations of like and Kugels and Terrapin, mm-hmm. but, but it was it, like was, dwarfed by like it was it like Loganitas or like Anchor? What were the big ones? Like the Ballast Point, year. yeah. Uh, and Loganitas were the two that were right around a billion dollars in valuation, which was insane. I yeah, mean, it was so insane. Uh, <laughs> the the M and A environment, even for these giant corporations, seemed to get real emotional. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like there were people that were just so committed to getting into that space with a premium craft brand. They thought they could just roll out over the, um, you know, across the country that they were paying multiples that didn't make any sense. Um, And which is just proof that like, you know, you can be the biggest, most analytical corporation in the world. and You're still going to make weird emotional decisions sometimes. I mean, beer's emotional. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) But I mean, the ballast point, guys, uh, that thing probably should have sold for a few hundred million and went for a billion. Uh, And then... And then they they took a bunch of people and resources to start uh, to build out Cutwater, their their RTD brands, mm -hmm. turned around and sold that to AB. And so they sold the beer brand for a billion dollars to Constellation and then offloaded Cutwater a few years later um, to AB. I mean, those guys just ran the table. Yeah. That was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And the Cutwater brand is the only thing grown. Ballast Point got devalued multiple times. They took a huge hit on the brand value of that on the books. Hundreds of millions of hits. Uh, and then, uh, and it got bought by Kings and convicts, which is, was a little tiny suburban brewery here that nobody had even heard about. A few guys, uh, that put together an investment group to go after the ballast point brand and picked it up for like, I don't, I can't even remember what it cents was Cents on the dollar cents on the dollar. Wow. Uh, and now they're closing down pieces of it out, out west. Um, yeah, that brand was, I've never seen anything valued as high as that was perform and then also performed so poorly. Uh, just brutal and
0: when did so when you spun off what year is that and start doing your own thing
2: probably 20 man 2013 ish was when i think i got serious about the content side of things 2015 was when i started working in earnest i think on the design studio side of things seems like Um, your timing was
0: perfect because it was like right as everything needed that branding and marketing well everybody suddenly had to take things seriously yeah like they were kind of starting to decline it wasn't as much of a slam dunk anymore and then that's where you stepped in yeah and were able to guide them
2: yeah and there were still plenty of startups coming into the space yeah like it wasn't just you know it wasn't just guiding existing breweries into their next phase it's Uh, kind of right
0: right place right time yeah
2: yeah it was it was definitely the right time um but we'd been paying attention to it the whole time we had a sense of the whole arc of the story you know that way um and so yeah the podcast i mean it's funny in our first year of the studio side the podcast was responsible for 70 percent of our inbounds which was kind of wild to me because we just started it because nobody like all the all the beer podcasts out there were just like a couple of guys getting drunk and goofing around and i was like i can't listen (laughs) to this shit anymore it
0: was rating stuff right like Uh, all the other
2: podcasts kind of or just like literally just an excuse to drink and talk you know i mean (laughs) that's
0: what this is yeah
2: well lacroix yeah drink lacroix (laughs) And so I, st- so I just started doing like hour long conversations with producers and like talking about the business in a, in a very focused way, like thinking about it strategically. Um, but then also, you know, a good bit of personal story mixed in, but I mean, it's a, it's a lot of what you guys are doing right now.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Geneva, Danny, what is Geneva? Well, Tim, I'm glad you asked. Geneva is a European spirit with a wide range of flavors and lots of personality. It always uses malt spirit and juniper and other botanicals, so some would place it somewhere between gin and whiskey. It can be floral and bright like gin or round and malty like whiskey. Whatever your preference, there's a Geneva out there for you. Even me? Even you, Tim. This campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. where did you see it like start to take off? Like in the beginning when you were, you know, blogging or podcasting, mm-hmm. <clears throat> your demo is like a certain, certain demo,
2: certain size. And then over time you're like, whoa, I'm this many when months in and now I've s- like doubled. Yeah, we somehow got, no, uh, there was one article I wrote about Hill Farmstead that um, I think was one of the better sort of like story pieces I've written about a producer. Uh, and it was also a producer that was so sought after. Um, and, and I kind of wrote the antithesis of the New York Times kind of beat on, uh, you know, the, he was getting a lot of stories out of New York media, which were probably great for him. But I think he kind of hated them secretly that just kind of treated him like this, like guru on a mountain somewhere in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And they're all that all everything was really like breathless um and i went up there and i was just like i was like this seems like a bitch of a place to make beer you got a truck like where's your water coming from where's any of your packaging materials to get up this mountain like this road is dirt and mud like and so just being able to like look at it through that perspective of like how how terrible it would be and and silly it is to start a brewery this far out um but then also acknowledging that the consumer demand for stuff like that was was pushing people up the mountain like they were gonna do it uh, so writing a piece that sort of encapsulated the romance side of what he was doing, which was legitimately romantic. There, I don't fault any reporters for going up there and being romanced by it. Mm-hmm. But then also balancing that against, like, I think I called it Sisyphus sits upon his rock. Like this mm-hmm. idea. I was like, this guy's literally pushing shit up a hill right now. It's um, <laughs> uh, a good so, title. Humanizing the process. Yeah. And so th- I uh, basically wrote it as a case study. Um, and that blew up. That got a ton of attention. Uh, but then Savor had their blog awards. Uh, shortly after that we got shortlisted for a blog award and then we won it which was the first time beer had ever even been represented and then we won it a second year um so two years in a row and like at that point it was just sort of in a a different kind of echelon of yeah how did the
0: viewership change if you remember like pre definitely went more national
2: it was definitely like sort of chicago and regional at first because that's most of what i visited and talked about Uh, then it went national then i had people who wanted to write for it you know so it became more of like a publication not just Hmm. my personal um, my personal blog and when did you hire your first employee it would have been Kyle Kastron I couldn't tell you when uh, but it was around that time with Savour. he wanted to write about what was happening in Ohio I was like oh weird That would be weird to do,
1: (laughs) but yeah, sure. Let's do it. Was that his pitch? Uh,
2: Yeah. I mean, his pitch was great. He's a great writer. He's also a phenomenal designer and creative director. And so when like our niche, a lot of people would think that our niche audience was just craft beer drinkers and that's true, but it overlapped with this audience of creatives because the photography was always so important to what I did. And so like designers and photographers and other artists just like loved it as a brand and as a visual platform as well. And I think he was one of them. Like he'd never written for anybody before. But he saw what we were doing from a visual perspective and just wanted to be associated with that and produce work that looked like that. So he took beautiful photographs. And he uh, I think he called it State of the Union. And he was just sort of trying to capture what was happening in the past, present, future of Ohio in terms of craft beer, which has a great history. Um, it goes deeper than most other places. And he just wrote a phenomenal piece, and that so, got a ton of attention. So he was in Ohio? Yeah, where, yeah, where he's still mind? there. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah,
1: Cool. Um, to, uh, on the point of design and aesthetic like beer labels it's like a thing like aggressive metal early on like the smaller the brewery the more aggressive the the design so how like could you explain that trend and then kind of your strategy when you're thinking about how to design packaging
2: yeah i mean
0: just more metal no
2: (laughs) a lot of what we try to do goes against that i mean i think the the reason why it looked that way for so long is because like uh, I think those were the people that were getting into it and wanted to, they want, you know, they were quitting their jobs and starting craft breweries and they wanted to do something that was like, fuck my corporate job. And that was very much a part of the ethos yeah, on average. It you makes know? Sense. Um, and so they were just looking for a way to express themselves and just wanted something that felt that way. And I think there was a lot of like passion and emotion and angst and like fear that went into doing all of that. And <laughs> yeah. So I think it comes through. And so that was very much a defining of, a, of a, uh, an organic way of that aesthetic being defined. I think there was a second generation of breweries that were like, I don't know if you are gonna start a craft brewery, it's gotta look fucking metal, I guess. You know, and mm-hmm. they just kind of followed the playbook. <laughs> That's where it started to get kind of like sad to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um So I I don't know. A lot of what we do, I think, uh, is we try I mean, I think that portion of craft beer is in a great spot and will always exist. And I don't think anybody needs to like try to be that uh to be successful anymore. Um I think these days you're actually hindering yourself by trying to like put on that coat and like pretend uh so there's i mean now there are ten thousand craft breweries there's room for every kind of organic starting place and aesthetic and like the way you want to communicate like anybody can kind of get in there and make a name for themselves um, depending on your ambitions and so a lot of what we end up doing in beer um, whether it's small or medium or, or large at this point is like we just try to stand out amongst the competitive set align it with like larger visions and strategies uh but connect with a consumer like and just getting to getting people's attention off that shelf for a while was like real real hard um but most people have pulled back from that i mean you can still go through a binnies and get overwhelmed but now you can go to a target and buy off color and like mm-hmm. to me that just that's kind of amazing uh is that just local targets that's got to be right uh oh well, for off color yes mm-hmm. but like Uh, uh, targets walmart's like chain retail in general have they're making local and regional plays for craft beer because craft beer still moves motivates people to come in so for them it increases an overall basket ring opportunity Uh, they want to be an attraction for that stuff they don't want you to have to go to multiple stores to get that stuff and then maybe spend your money somewhere else so, and they also know, any, I mean, you guys probably know, anytime you walk into a Target, you spend $100. So if you're going to stop in and buy a beer, <laughs> yeah. they got you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. Craft beer is one of those things that for a while I think was a real store driver, a, st- a store visit driver. Maybe not as much these days, but still important. Were you
1: blown away with the success of Liquid Death, or did it? Ma- <laughs> does that make sense to you?
2: Ah, uh, that's great. That's one of the, it's. It really irritates me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like, why didn't it's I think insane. of insane?
0: No, just like, why is or it? Or just... Yeah. Uh,
2: it fits into this category of things that I find hard to articulate these days where uh, it just gets such widespread adoption, e- even in the face of its, like, cynical quality. Yeah, it's so cynical that... <laughs> and then people are into and it. then and you know and then in a year it's gone maybe like i don't know i don't know what the staying power of liquid death is the fact that i've already seen them rolling out a bunch of new flavors and trying really hard to work those puns yep. i'm just like okay maybe the maybe this is already on its way uh was the there decline? i, I don't think know. it's fine. i mean it has a sense exit. of humor murder your thirst yeah you know, i
0: think they got valued at a bunch of money i don't know that they sure sold i it mean for that.
2: non-alcoholic cpg the valuations are insane compared to beer beer historically is evaluated based on it's like a multiple per barrel that is not how cpg brands in general get evaluated mm-hmm. uh they you know that they, they take into a, and that's mostly because beer has never had a national brand equity kind of value the way that other cpg brands do like buy water not BAI. Like, that was a billion-dollar brand. Um, and, like, wasn't even close, I think, in terms of, like, uh, uh, asset value and, you know, per barrel or whatever that something like Ballast Point was. Um, so, I don't know. The way CPG valuations work is, like, completely Nuts, disconnected yeah. to how beer valuations work. Beer just gets short shrifted every time. So, where
1: where's the market at right now? I guess, what's what's the trend? I mean, it seems like Seltzer's took off crazy everywhere everyone's got their own version is that still like the, the fastest growth retailers right now? have
2: pushed no uh it's still doing well and it's probably going to be around forever now uh as a category um but retailers about a year and a half ago started pushing back on their shelf sets expanding for seltzer they started just picking the winners basically and saying like these are the only ones we're going with and who um, are the leaders so white claw and truly are the standouts um i couldn't tell you who three four five are right well, now it's Hi kind Noon
0: of is probably in the
2: yeah, that technically goes a different route because it's a, a vodka-based vodka product. But, enough. yeah, yeah. Um, that's certainly malt, t- yeah. yeah. I mean, not only are they doing well and growing, but they have a huge premium um, because of the vodka side of things. So there's still some room to play there, especially regionally. Um, but in the hard seltzer, yeah, I would say that the brands who are going to succeed have succeeded. And, like, that's probably locked up now.
1: Is Topo Chico Coca-Cola? That's right, yeah. Okay. So they just bought the brand and then expanded
2: into alcoholic I beverages? believe so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't. Th- I think that did fine. There's a lot of brands like that that did like fine. Tim's um, just figuring
0: out which stocks to invest in right now. <laughs>
2: Figure out which ones to He's sell. He's like, we got Michael yeah. on the show. Which Let's ones try should to I see.
0: short?
1: Yeah, um, spirits so man. If it's not a spirits put the brand, money get in Coca-Cola? out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's insane. So how um, do you do, like, different classes? I guess, how do you decide which partners to work with? Do you call them clients or partners? I guess yeah, so it's I mean, up, yeah, it's a mix of both. I mean, sometimes it's
2: a client gig. Sometimes it's actually a partnership. So, so we, we've taken a percentage or a rev share in certain products.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there a time um, that your two partners are like, we really want to work with us? And you're like, ugh. I really don't want to. I mean, if they, they bring another them. cider maker to the table, I'll probably <laughs> <laughs> a critical mass on ciders. Yeah, like, do, does it come to votes between the three of you? And Luckily, uh, it's an odd number, so there's always two-on-one.
2: We haven't really had, like, an actual disagreement about an opportunity. There's been people that are more passionate about a certain producer than others. Um, but not yet. No, we haven't had anybody that's just like, I'm out, like, on that one. No, that hasn't happened. But you brought—so
0: you were solo, and then you brought in— these partners. Yep. Was it tough to adjust to having partners all of a sudden when you? you yeah. Were just the one in multiple before? directions
2: for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I knew both of these guys really well. I mean, Ryan is one is my best friend in the world. they officiated his wedding, and so like me and him working together was already. And I had already worked with him a little bit on the Angry Orchard brand, uh, and I knew him from his homebrew days. So like. That dynamic was great as a as a as friends working together was a little unique of a challenge for sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, people talk about like never work you know never work with your husband or your wife like I mean the same thing can go for best friends and so working through that dynamic was uh, was complex for sure because like I think things that make him and me uh, really connect are also the things that can like miscommunicate sometimes and like that's challenging because like we're both pretty like gung ho and like communicate very directly. Uh, But I think we can also be really sensitive at the same time. Um, And so we had to work through some of that. Uh, But that's going great. Um, And with Chase, Chase, I, uh, I know, I feel like I understand the way he thinks so well. That's a that communication relationship is really high functioning for me. Um, It's funny because, like, he thinks I'm the chill one. And that's, like, maybe the only relationship I have where anybody thinks I'm the chill (laughs) one. Uh, And it's just because, like, that guy is just, like, always going and, like, aggressive. And, like, when he sees something clearly, he just, like, goes for it. And, like, that's what I love about him. Uh, And I love how that reflexively allows me to sort of hang back and just play, like, creative director a little bit. So, like, that was – that dynamic shifted my role in a really – really constructive way for me yeah um and so i really liked that but then there's also like those two kind of meeting and working together for the first time ever with each other oh yeah um both individually having a relationship with me but and so i i this was one of the more complex things i've ever had to try to do as an individual was like i was like uh i am not going to be able to quickly make all of this high functioning I'm going to have to create a situation in which there is time and attention and opportunity to like discover the value in each other. Uh, and I believe that if I give everybody enough chances and I just sort of like nudge things in a general direction, the right way that like all of this is going to come together really, really nicely. I just don't know how fast and I don't know what the bumps are going to be along the way, but that was sort of like a, I don't know. I felt a little bit like a farmer with a field, like hoping things are going to grow if i just do all the right things and and that's not to sound that's not to say that like i'm trying to manipulate a situation it was literally like a an act of faith for me that like i think these two guys and me together are going to work really really well together but it's not going to happen for a minute you know mm-hmm. and being patient with those things and not being able to just like construct it and make it happen and convince people of something is like yeah. that was hard for me yeah did you and feel that like was you some had real to, personal growth for me
0: did you have to mediate a lot like initially? Just to be like, hey, you know, I know you're thinking that he's saying this, but actually like. Oh, sure. I mean, mostly
2: just like helping people understand intention and like how they communicate and what they mean by certain things. But I had to do that in every direction, even for myself to them. Um, Like there was a lot of it was (laughs) multidimensional for sure. Yeah, for sure. And some of that I I think some of that will be in the system for a while. But we've gotten to this place pretty effectively i don't know, maybe took like five six months for me to feel like like this is exactly the dream team i thought it was going to be that's great um, and i see them relying on each other in really cool ways and like uh, i don't feel like i'm mediating anything anymore like yeah, i think they awesome. have a strong enough relationship now that's based in work experience where like they have their own rapport and their own trust now that like me i'm not in the middle of that organically anymore like it's just working uh and it's just been awesome. I mean, the three of us in a room, I could see the effect it has on a client uh, when we're talking about the total business in an integrated way. I know, based on my own experience, like, they're, they're not getting that conversation anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit of a super group thing, and super groups are challenging that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's clicking. Yeah. And I love it. I don't know. At any point in my business history of the last, like, 10 to 15 years, like, uh, I'm most excited to, like, wake up and see what calls i'm I'm gonna have that day than i've ever been because of it that's Um, awesome
1: so what what are the three roles
2: yeah uh so i'm creative director so brand and packaging uh and positioning um ryan is liquid strategy operational expertise uh he can basically produce anything uh and then chase is uh distribution go-to-market strategy uh in between you know that being an integrated thing rather than silos means that we're all using those components to figure out like what the configuration of the brand and product and play is uh and we all influence each other that way like they all we all speak each other's language enough to be really good at that um i don't know if you imagine it being like a super group band like uh i might not be a guitar player but i can play a lick real quick to show him what i'm thinking about all right? and that'll influence how he's going to interpret what i want from like a vocal thing and like there's enough of each other's uh, skill sets embedded in each of us that, like, we can speak the language really well. Yeah, uh, and I love that skill about sets. it. Yeah. like the Traveling Wilburys.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, used, I always used to ask the question, "Who would you add to the Traveling Wilburys if anybody?" Hmm. Who would fit in? My answer is Van Morrison. <laughs> Well, that's neither here nor there.
0: <laughs> You're not going
2: to get a very compelling answer yeah, out of me sorry, at all. Yeah, me neither.
0: All right. All right. Uh, so anyway, mo- moving on. So, so that's when Jim was bobbing for apples. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was Roy Orbison. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when
1: you uh, start working with the new company. Are, are you guys discussing an exit strategy immediately like is that uh, even on your mind mm. or is it more like we want to grow this brand organically we want to own this forever we want it to be a, a profitable business or right. or is it important that they do have an idea of an exit
2: yeah i would say strategically it's important to understand exit options even if you never want to do it mm-hmm. um and what, what are those options right now yeah i mean consolidation is still happening uh in beer not as much so uh, if we're talking about beer like you might as well like i hope you're signing up forever mm-hmm. um because yeah. there's not really an acquisition environment anymore um there are strategic alignments that you can make so like multiple producers getting together to do something um that's still happening a little bit excuse me um but if you're outside of beer so if you're insider i still think there is room to grow those brands pretty dramatically at the regional level. Um, again acquisition is not happening there it never really was insider uh I, I there's opportunity there but most of that's passed i think i think cider right now as a category is kind of stuck at one one and a half percent um and it probably will be for a while so right now the opportunity in cider is to take share of that with a really compelling brand and portfolio uh at a regional level and i still think that's like the numbers show us that that's still growing double digits so oh, that's wow. healthy yeah um the, you know, in the, in the beyond sort of beer, beyond cider space, uh, where we're talking about lots of different kinds of products, like uh, pulp culture is one that we're working with in LA, which is sort of like probiotics and mushrooms and like all these other sort of antioxidant nutrient kind of supplies that is targeting a more health and wellness and athletic sort of focused drinker that it does have alcohol in it comes from a natural fermentation process. Uh, that's an example of just like total white space. We don't even know how big that can get. But brands like that have the potential to be acquired really early because they represent a totally new niche with an audience that you can own. Hmm. And so you're not really part of the noise. I mean you, you might be part of the like, larger world of noise around like, much, you know, mud water and you know, other sort of like elixir drinks and um, kin or not uh, uh, yeah kin. Um, but to be the only one that sort of like, is alcohol based and also these other things like, puts you in a kind of a class of your own. So that's a that's a place where acquisition or you know um, uh, or other sort of strategic partnership strategic partnerships can exist really quickly early on in a brand's mm-hmm. life, and so that's one where like man uh, any small brand entering a space like that uh, is in a position of constantly raising money, not having enough money, yeah. considering giant acquisition possibilities, and then having nothing again, and like it's just like it's a real roller coaster. Um, like Pied Piper in Silicon Valley yeah exactly <laughs> real dramatic <laughs> exactly. Uh, so a lot of your life and you know in small brands that are in a startup white space uh, it, it can feel dramatic for sure like a founder's role can be split between trying to tell the story of a brand or you know trying to lead a portfolio development, understanding audiences and then also raising money constantly or talking to potential acquirers and like trying to stretch yourself across all of that is kind of a nightmare so, and in, in roles like that we are often taking on like freeing up the founder to go continue focusing on uh, the financial side of things whether it's a raise or an acquisition or a partnership of some sort uh, while we take over liquid strategy brand strategy uh, and start pushing the business forward in that way and start making specific plays into specific markets and like building the business uh, as if it's going to be around in the way that it is for a few years mm-hmm. uh, so we're looking at growth while well, he's looking you know that person is looking at a revolution in the business and possibly an exit so all of those things are happening at the same time
1: this episode of joiners is brought to you by stock manufacturing makers of fine hospitality workwear you obsess over the details in your space so why stop at your staff's uniforms stock has something for every aesthetic from fine dining to a corner cafe they've got you covered. Choose from in stock, ready to wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. So a lot of restaurants and bars have like the N a options are growing. Mm -hmm. It's trickling over into packaged goods with like phony Negroni, things like that. Do you think that's a flash in the pan or do you think that there's real growth there or, like, a real demand as people go California sober or whatever?
2: Yeah, uh, yes and no. So it's not a category growth opportunity. I think it's going to stay around 1% to 2% for a long time. And that's basically what non-alk has always had, uh, especially if we're talking about beer. I think it's around 1%. Um, so people keep talking about like the category's growing by like thirty percent. It's like yeah, from one percent, <laughs> <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not doing it's not doing a thousand percent. But what it is doing is reorganizing a space that had become like dead stock of brands. Yeah, um, I mean nobody's out there. Ex- I mean, people who are excited about non-alcoholic right, non-alk right now are not buying O'Doul's. They're buying athletic, yeah, fun right. stuff, yeah. right? And so there's just like there's a lot of new brand, new energy, Taking new market occasion from the old people, exactly. And so it's not growing the category o- overall, but it feels exciting because it's showing up products, in new places yeah. with new products. Yeah,
1: I mean, O'Doul's was a punchline for a long time, big time. So yeah,
2: that's hard to climb out of. So I I, I see the founder from Athletic out there all the time talking about the revolution of the non beer category and how fast it's growing. And in my opinion, I think he's full of it from a category perspective. But he represents the driving force in the reorganization of that category so his brand in particular is phenomenal mm. uh and i see nothing but huge amounts of growth for the athletic brand yeah um, within his category within his category yeah. so like as much action is happening in non alcoholic beer he's got most of it i mean he's got the whole mic right now so there's a bunch of other small craft producers that are starting to make non alcoholic brands i don't think they're gonna be anywhere near as good as him or as exposed as him or You know, they're going to work at the local regional level. They're not going to have the VC funding that he has. Um, You know, he's got partnerships with, uh, you know, he's got partnerships with, like, AB around using, like, whey protein and stuff like that. And, like, Mm. he's just operating in a much more, uh, at a a much higher level of startup and, like, VC funding and, like, go-to-market strategy than a small craft brewery is. Like, he looks like a small craft brewery. That's not what that is. (laughs) Um, And I think he's killing it. I think it's great. But the way he talks about the category, I'm just like, I don't know who that's for. Half the time I look at the numbers, I'm like, this is just not adding up, man. (laughs) It's not there. Is
1: there an opportunity for a weed crossover with
2: beverages? Yes. There are a lot of barriers to that. Yeah. uh to widespread success but i mean we see it already tape you mean because it's state by state state by state so it's going to have to be through vertically integrated partners with brand licensing deals to cross state lines Mm -hmm. um so uh but yeah i mean thc in beverages is already happening it's happening in a small way because it's controlled by the by the state problem um if that gets federalized you're gonna see you're gonna see brands like can just explode i think Problem is, uh, are they going to run out of money before that ever happens? How long? I mean, it could take two years. It could take twenty. Yeah, we just don't know. And like, and again, that's a very emotional part of the market. Is like every time it feels like we're close, it suddenly feels far away again, and uh-huh. like it's frustrating. That would be a terrible place to to be waiting on a bet you made. So frustrating. Yeah. yeah but i think personally. the <laughs> I, mean, I don't have a dog <laughs> in the fight yeah <laughs> but tell th- tim's
0: broker that yeah no kidding
2: <laughs> put it all put it all on can <laughs> <Can't>
0: do
2: <laughs> they're doing a great job i mean they're doing what they can yeah Can't uh, i know i know it's been frustrating for them and other folks in that vein of like just trying to figure out what the future looks like because it'll fundamentally change your business model um yeah, yeah that sucks yeah um, is, is there any red tape from
1: state to state for alcohol
2: uh, certainly, not nearly as as restricted as it is with yeah. THC. Uh, but I mean, there's wholesaler laws that change from state to state, franchise laws. Um, you know, I mean, you couldn't even send more than three point two beers to Utah for the longest time. You know, like oh. where it can be sold in grocery stores or liquor stores, things like that. So it's, it's very complex on oh, the right. beer side, yeah. but it's more. You can buy but it. it's pretty permissible at the same time. It's just different in every state, right? Um, which can be very frustrating in its own way yeah
1: we got a taste of the red tape with cannabis because we do a lot of dispensary uniforms oh uh, yeah like, we had to do like different labels in different states and stuff it's it was yep. a real pain in the ass <laughs> yep. painting
2: cash inside envelopes <laughs> yeah right
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah um anything else that you want to cover before we get to the gratuity round oh my goodness i don't know any exciting
2: uh, news on the horizon I uh, just had, yeah, just had our third kid. Oh, wow. So, still figuring out how to run a couple different businesses at once, because, like, the Good Beer Hunting thing and Feel Goods, the consulting side, are, like, two totally separate entities. Um, but, yeah, still adding entities in terms of children at the same time. Congrats. <laughs> future employees. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Nice. Uh, but well, that's, been, that's been fun.
0: Cool.
2: Yeah. And you guys live
0: in chicago we
2: moved out to glenview last okay. spring cool. um which is like you know it goes chicago skokie glenview we're right next yeah. to skokie on the east glenview side which has been awesome cool uh, but i will say uh not great for breweries up that way kind of a <laughs> <laughs> bummer i'm missing that restaurants and breweries man sounds I, like yeah. an opportunity
0: yeah a lot of korean food though near you
2: uh it's true especially if you go further northwest yeah i'm um, about awesome. that yeah, I saw, like, a bone broth place near H Mart that was, like, kind of Jones and Forks. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. There. It's there's also
0: an amazing pho place in Glenview I went oh. to the other day.
2: Uh, I'll take your tip on yeah, that for I'll sure. Yeah, I'll tell you off-air
0: because yeah. I don't remember the name right yeah, now. Jobek Jaloo
2: just moved into Glenview, which I'm pretty psyched about, which is, like, Persian food. Oh, cool. Um, oh, like, nice super good stuff. There's that's one in awesome. the city That's awesome.
0: joiners podcast is brought to you by party can party can is a premium batched large format full flavored cocktail that uses high-end liquor real juice real ingredients it's all natural gluten free it's 12 drinks in a single can and guess what that can actually floats you can take it to the beach the pool on the boat camping hiking to the game everywhere you go it is recyclable and reusable. It's a party in a can and everyone's invited. Party can is available at multiple retailers around Chicago, around the country, and you can always go to drinkpartycan.com to find a local store or have one shipped to you or a friend. And now, back to our interview. All right, All right let's sweet. get to it. Gratuity let's hit him.
1: Michael Kaiser.
0: Gratuity round, baby. What's
2: your death row meal? My death row meal. Ah. Uh... It's going to be carb-heavy for sure. Um, hmm.
0: I asked my family this yesterday. We were at dinner there. My parents are in town. And uh, it was amazing how no one could answer the question properly at all. It was like, what? It's like 12. Can I say 12 things? Like, they hit what? you with more questions. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, I guess. Well, like, the- if it's your death <laughs> or a meal, do whatever you want. but like just choose the one <laughs> they like weren't getting it uh, so. could it be spread over 30 years things are like this, this i'm like what
2: i mean the two things that it wasn't long ago maybe a couple weeks ago i was talking with my wife about what her all-time favorite meals were and her and i both have the same one and two and wow. we were, i was surprised by that uh which are uh number one was the spicy clams we ate in portugal okay Right in uh, Nazaré, we were kind of off-peak season. We we're just alone in a patio eating spicy clams, and it was just like kind of mind blowing hmm. to us. Damn. The other one was sitting at Tom Oliver, cider maker in Herefordshire, England. Uh, we went out to visit him. We were sitting, in, we were sitting at his table to record a podcast, and we he breaks out his ciders, which I think are some of the best in the world. Uh, and he just starts cutting up like uh, like Scotch egg kind of things and yeah. like meat pies and stuff, and. Something about that moment of his ciders and those meat pies and like hanging out in his living room in this little cottage in Herefordshire, like it doesn't get better it's than that. magical very, very setting. setting, yeah. Um, and just like sopping it up with bread, and like I don't know, I think that's as good as it gets for me. Yeah, that's pretty good. Two destination death row meal, <laughs> yeah, right? Am I allowed to go to another country for it? <laughs> Absolutely, why not?
0: Uh, hold on, real quick, I'll be right back to death row. Let me just go eat these. Meals. I'll, wear, I'll wear an anchor, I'll put yeah, it on yeah, an ankle, ankle bracelet raising. for that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: all right what's your favorite hidden gem restaurant uh is it hidden i mean when people think about restaurants in chicago uh i don't think they think about middlebrow bungalow uh, in terms of like a restaurant the way they normally yeah. would i was there I last, was last night there last night yeah it's awesome that's my favorite place he ran out
0: on his tab it's my favorite <laughs> right. place yeah.
2: uh I mean, just look, just from the brewery perspective, I mean, they're making wine now too, which is great. I know. I want to try that wine. It's I fun, saw it man. in the
0: pictures you guys put up, and I was like, did mm-hmm. you try any of that wine? Yeah, they're making a
2: bunch it. of weird hybrid Michigan grape stuff that's just like, and the way they're fermenting it towards its strengths. Cool. Which is like, you know, fruity, fun stuff, but not in this, like, I mean, Michigan wine is terrible. <laughs> uh, they are not, uh, they're using a bunch of like cool hybrid grapes to get to like these like really cool profiles that are like fermenty in a way that I really love. Cool. Um, not but uh uh i love the hospitality of that place um i mean just the way they talk to you and like look at you is just like so welcoming and like i remember when i first started going there i was like man it's kind of culty in here uh but (laughs) i was like that's coats yeah they all wear the blue (laughs) chore coats and like uh but i've I've just kind of i've i mean i guess i joined the cult like i just really love the vibe and like how soft and slow it is and like it's a brewery you can get vegetables at, which is cool. Like, that's, like, yeah. an, an uncommon mashup. Like, yeah. every time I go there, like, I go for the pizza, but I always get the kale salad, which is, like... The salad's great. With it's the crunchies on top. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, like, you know, I don't know. I have a hard time pitching that to anybody for the first <laughs> yeah. time. But then they go and they have this thing, and they're like, that was by far the best thing on the menu. That like, was incredible. Um, with, like, other seasonal vegetables on it and, like, and the chev. And, I don't know, that thing is... That is maybe my favorite restaurant in Chicago. Uh, I I would I would be loath not to mention uh, Lula Cafe though as like my longtime favorite. Yeah, because um, so. our studio used to be just down the street from there in Logan. Oh, nice. Um, and so like being able to pop in there for lunch, uh, any it's, a, it's you know. a treat. Oh, yeah, felt so spoiled.
0: They did our wedding. Really?
2: Yeah. Damn. Yeah, pretty epic
1: damn yeah it's sweet yeah the food at danny's wedding was amazing but the drinks sucked <laughs> <laughs> no i'm kidding danny had like a full scofflaw menu at the. that's movie. incredible yeah, you yeah. could
0: order how people many losing drink? their minds a little bit how Under many school. drinks did you have not you, know. how <laughs> many did you drink when you were on the menu i think there were
2: like eight drinks on the menu uh, yeah that's wild yeah. we had uh we bought beers from greenbush kegs oh, uh cool. which was like one of the first craft breweries i ever wrote about up in michigan oh cool because yeah. we got married in michigan and we trucked them up there
0: it's in sawyer right
2: yeah and it never occurred to me at the time that, like, most of the family just drinks, like, Coors Light. <laughs> so here they're drinking, like, 8.1% retribution, you know, <laughs> and, like, just losing their minds. Yeah. Uh, oh, my God. I remember my dad... My dad... We tried to cut my dad off. <laughs> I hadn't seen him in, like, 15 years. So there's, so there's like deeper disturbing context to all of this but like <laughs> hadn't seen him in like 15 years and he comes to the wedding i was like holy shit dad came to the wedding i wasn't expecting Did that. you find out day of uh kind of yeah like Whoa. my uncle gave me a heads up like day Wild. of, like oh just so you know your dad is coming he's on the way Wow. um just got lit because he never had beers like this in his life <laughs> and like so we we're trying to cut him off because he's just like getting lit and uh and he goes up to my friend and it was like he was like, Can you get me another beer? I'll trade you a cigarette for it. And the guy was, and my friend was like, dude, we're not supposed to give you more beer, don't make me do that. And he pulls out a little a little pocket knife and points it at him. He's like, Get me a fucking beer. <laughs> oh, my. I love it. It's like somebody had to come up to me at my own wedding at the reception, and be like, So your dad pulled a knife on me? Am I allowed to get him a beer or not? <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> he pulls out the Swiss army. Yeah. Like like thirty sir, seconds later he was asleep in his bed. Sir, so like it was a definitely a last gasp. <laughs> last
1: I like the determination. <laughs> um, oh my God. All right, Michael, what's your favorite fast food? <laughs> Ooh. Our mm. last few guests have not been fast food eaters. Which oh, we do, I mean, good.
2: I have kids, so it's definitely part yeah. of the mix. Uh, oh, man. There is
1: a right answer to this, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there, there is
2: not. <sighs> what is it? I mean, so there's a, it's going to be meal by meal. Okay. Do you uh, want to go get, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Yeah, let's do okay. breakfast, lunch, dinner. So uh, maybe late night. So breakfast is Wendy's, which I'm surprised by because that used to be in McDonald's territory for yeah. me. Yeah. What but they have a sausage breakfast sandwich that is like real peppery, like black peppery. Hmm. And it's delicious. And, and my wife sold me on this eventually. Um, so I'm only a few months into this, but like it's wow. winning. Um, the sausage sandwich is amazing and like way more spicy than you're used to getting from fast food. And they have uh, the little potato wedges things that are like crispy to an unreal degree like they break like like fragile glass in your mouth in the super satisfying way it's killing they're killing breakfast i would never think to go to wendy's for never breakfast. in a million years yeah, wow nope killing it they need help with marketing <laughs> and then uh God, Michael. i mean lunch is going to be the number seven at mcdonald's it's the two cheeseburger meal there's nothing better than eating a second cheeseburger right after the first cheeseburger <laughs> bang bang That's run it back gets. uh late night my kids and this is there's some tension here my kids have been real into chick-fil-a and i don't know where they i don't know where it comes from they were like days a week they're just like drawn to it like Hmm. the name chick-fil-a is fun for them so like i take my uh my well he used to be the youngest now he's the middle i take him to basketball with me which is usually like seven to nine o'clock and so like on our way back he's like starving and chick-fil-a is like the only thing open on our way back and so i'm just like okay do i need to have a conversation with you about lgbtq rights (laughs) and like corporate funding of like legislation or am i getting you a chicken sandwich and you're going to bed so that i can like take a shower uh, and right now we're kind of in that uncomfortable middle ground of like, yeah, once a week he's getting a Chick-fil-A sandwich uh, and I'm just trying my best to like not make that like his yeah. favorite thing. <laughs> he's hungry for a
1: snack, not a lesson. <laughs> right.
2: Oh, my God. And my, and my brain is just like not in a place to explain anything at the, at, after yeah, two hours yeah. of just like hustling basketball. for basketball. Like I can barely breathe. Um, so is he playing in your league with you? He just made his first shot on a 10-foot basket with an adult ball uh, uh, Tuesday wow okay. how old is he he's been working on it for like three months he's six about to turn seven wow. um and was he it's funny like the women's ball before that no no i mean he, he was playing he has like a kid tiny, a little tiny kid ball that he was yeah. playing with for a while but uh he got real motivated like, he used to come out and just shoot and like he used to be perfectly comfortable not making it mm-hmm. um and you know he would just like try and show off his dribbling skills but then his friend danielle who's the daughter of one of the other guys who uh he brings her and they all hang out she walked onto the court and without even saying anything, just like sank one and then kept walking. <laughs> and I just watched his whole body drop out. Oh, you know, like he was just like, what the, how did she do that? Uh, <laughs> and so like, he started practicing real hard after that. And uh, so cool. we, you know, we were, go- he didn't say it. I, he just kept asking me to go to the park and like practice and practice, yeah. and, practice and practice. Open gym as a one. kid was a treat. Yeah. But he gets to hang out with all the old guys, mostly, yeah. Um, which he really likes. He likes talking to them about stuff. And I like watching them listen to Minecraft while I don't have to listen to Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. But he made one, and then he made five more in a row. So, like, you just got to see one go in, man. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Um, all right. What's your favorite
1: obscure beer? Hmm. Is it obscure? Uh, obscure yeah. Obscure in that, like... Our listeners probably haven't heard of it, but yeah. So our listeners have probably, probably heard
2: of saison it. Dupont. It's my all-time favorite beer. Um, that's my, yeah. That's my, that's the beginning of everything for me. That's, that's with your death row meal. Yeah, it would have to be, yeah. But the obscure version of that that I'm really tuned into right now is supermoon up in Milwaukee. Uh, Rob Brennan started that. He used to work at Penrose here in Chicago or the Burbs, went up there and started his own in a tiny little building uh and he's making beers that i would put in that category of like saison and farmhouse and i i think they're unbelievable i knew him as a home brewer he was making some of the the best the best like brett fermented beers i'd ever had as a home brewer um and that's qualifying that category not him like as a Mm -hmm. home brewer he was better than anybody uh and what he's doing up at supermoon with like beautiful farmhousey lagers, loggers saisons fruited things uh, i think it's unreal i get in a lot like my, my fridge my fridge beers are super moon beers can right? we get which is kind of ridiculous where do we get them in chicago you don't Aunt you drive Aunt up you there and get Milwaukee. them okay <laughs> that's Pick one the that's and that's what makes it obscure <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay what's your favorite macro brew yeah uh coors banquet i guess has been like my long time standby it's got a little bit of a fermenty quality we to have it. it at a heavy feather now yeah it's like our one of our few beers that it's just got a little something to it that's like probably a flaw frankly <laughs> um but like the, the fermentation <laughs> character comes through in that and most other macro beers like they they get rid of ferment you know fermentation character entirely so something about that one uh, i feel still like they've really had a bit
1: of a resurgence recently.
2: Yeah, it kind of comes well, it's around more
1: widely available it seems like. Yep. I think people like
2: that yeah, the look aesthetic. of the bottle. Yeah, that was maybe exactly. like It's like a eight-ish mm-hmm. years ago. It's like a martinelli. yeah, a little <laughs> stubby. Yeah,
0: I I do not advise biting into the Coors Banquet bottle. No.
2: It's worth a shot. <laughs> but they made a they made a comeback uh east of the Mississippi about 8 years ago. I remember I remember Pete Coors being on the media circuit with that and I got I got a little interview with him. Cool. Um I got real uncomfortable.
0: You did or he did? <laughs> he did.
2: <laughs> uh (laughs) were you grilling him did you turn the heat Uh, unintentionally I mean there was you know there's some history with the Coors family and some of their politics and he started talking about like I don't know why people can't drink lager made in America and so I was like tell me more about this America problem you're having right now and like that's when (laughs) yeah yeah, it got a little it got a little weird that's pretty good um I liked him he was super super kind in person and and represented the brand well but like there's there's definitely some some digging you can do there. I mean, yeah, the history of the Coors family is not great for you. No, it's not. My, my dad would not like, let
0: me drink Coors. Yeah, really?
1: Yeah. yeah. I remember my dad said it was like a treat, like because you couldn't get it. Oh, that in was Chicago, true for sure. So, yeah. like if friends were going out west, you'd be like, "Hey, bring it's some a, Coors back yeah. with you." Yeah. It's an
0: anti-Semitism thing. Oh, really? Yeah, ate off Coors. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, that's Tim goes, guy. wait, what? Yeah. I was like, oh, my dad loved this stuff. I'm like, it's a, it's a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> my dad, on the other hand. <laughs> yeah. Funny, he had no problem with it at all. Yeah. Yeah.
1: In fact, he said he preferred it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um,
2: okay, what's your favorite cocktail? Mm, uh, I'm not much of a cocktail guy in terms of, like, my knowledge set there is terrible. Uh, but I do love Negronis. Uh, that feels like a real basic thing to say, but I love them. No, him. it's all I good. love. Uh, the level of bitterness is just, like, just really hits my, like... If I'm going to drink a cocktail, like that's how it's going to stand out amongst all the things I drink. Yeah.
1: Uh, so Negroni's great. I love them. I just had a conversation about Scuffla's Negronis. I was at uh, Ludlow Liquors and oh, the bartender worked Joel. at Scuffla. Yeah. Yep. And uh, he was saying he his build is very similar to yours, but he didn't want to rip it off exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. Fair enough. Yeah. But I would
2: say other than that, Amaro of any and soda is such a gem.
0: Amaro for me. soda is a great drink. Yeah. Don't drink that enough. Yeah. I, I love. So it. good all right follow-up questions there or are you good i'm good i'm good okay
1: uh what trivia category would you dominate maybe <laughs> other than
2: beer <laughs> oh man
1: we contemplated
2: changing the wording of this to obscure trivia. i've gotten category. really really good at identifying trees and plants okay um uh, during the pandemic I started working in the forest preserve out in the suburbs which is oh, cool. half the reason i moved out there oh, and cool. like i've actually like literally gone back to school for some of that stuff so. mm. that's cool um, I was I was hanging out with Ryan and Chase out on the west coast, looking over the ocean, and there was these trees next to us. And they're like, "That's cool. What's that?" I was like, oh, "That's a cypress." And like, they're like, "What? How do you? Who the fuck knows what a tree is?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh damn." You're like this guy. Because I've been learning some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> cypress is a tall. There's uh, a lot fierce? of varieties. This oh, was okay. uh, this was a particular. I uh, Can't remember what variety it was. Were you in NorCal? Yeah, we were in NorCal. That's why. Yeah, cypress. It was like West Coast Cypress or something like that. It was a very different kind of looking cypress. Hmm. Uh, I have a bald cypress in my yard right now that we just planted, which I'm excited about. That's yeah. going to be like tall and narrow, loses its needles in the winter kind of thing. Do you have so. a lot of indoor plants? Uh, some. I'm not, as, I'm not as keen. I'm not like much of a plant guy in terms of like, you know, this new boho chic kind of trend that everybody's like loving on their yeah. plants thing. That was never mine. Mine's about being in the woods. More of that stuff. Cool. cool. Yeah. Uh, all right.
1: To what do you attribute your success?
0: fear <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I don't
2: know you sound pretty fearless
0: uh is that you're that's saying because like, learned... you grew up poor is that like yeah
2: a... that's a big part of it man it's just like trying to outrun the possibility of ending up like back where i started yeah um that's a lot of therapy's gone into that not being the driving force anymore which will never be successful but i can like I can be like, all right, younger Michael. I see. I see what's motivating you over yeah, you here. That's fine. It. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, let's talk to older Michael now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> who is aware of younger Michael? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a coach uh, who's been pretty instrumental in some of those things for me. That's uh, both on a personal and a business level. Just like, um, yeah, helping me sort of. I don't know slow my role a little bit and like pay attention to what's going on around me a little bit is that a new thing for you or have you always uh last few three? years yeah 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 it's good started out sort of accidentally and became one of the more important things in my life for sure yeah yeah it's not easy to find a therapist these days they are few and far between and they all want to do zoom got totally lucky i mean <laughs> yeah. this, well we have we've all, I've all we've only done zoom he lives in uh he lives in on a farm in ireland whoa uh, whoa. he was part of the subscriber club for good beer hunting and we were chat, and i'd met him in person a couple times in the uk but uh he's just i, I knew him as this like kind of wild and crazy beer guy uh who owned a farm and uh he hit me up he hit up the whole group he was like hey I, i'm trying to complete my coursework on this like coaching thing and i just need to do some free hours does anybody want some free coaching i was like yeah oh, cool. this was right in the, right after the pandemic started wow. i was like yeah sure i'll talk i mean i've always been curious about what coaching could be like and like, man, within minutes, we were talking about specific Irish poets that we both knew and loved, and like um, philosophy stuff that we had read and like really still operate by. And like uh, the beer thing was obviously a strong connection. And like, we just fucking clicked. Um, so that's, that's me good. A dream I mean, he's had, me like, he's had me up and like dancing and doing yoga and like mm. just getting in touch with the somatic side of the body that I'd never done and like way left behind. Wow. Um, he got me running again. I don't know. Yeah, like you're in really phenomenal of... shape. I lost 65 pounds, yeah, man. Yeah, you look great. It was Whoa. crazy. I
1: remember the first time I, I hadn't seen you probably for a couple years maybe over the pandemic. I was like, damn, Michael looks good. Yeah.
2: Well, thanks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i going to strut by those windows more often. Yeah. yeah. For the listeners, our offices are right next to each other on Fulton. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Michael, last question. What is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you?
2: Hmm. Man. Man. Uh, if they don't have a non option that is very annoying to me um just because i like to break things up these days um and some people still think it's like cool and metal to not do that uh oh any breweries especially man they need to just knock it the fuck off with like picnic tables and giant jenga and like all this boilerplate <laughs> <laughs> basic shit that just makes crap breweries seem like I don't, I, I'm not somebody that's like you can't bring your kids to breweries. I think it's great. I bring my kids to them all the time, but it doesn't have to be a childish fucking environment, you know. And I think <laughs> the the I think part of what has held craft beer back is it's sort of adolescent attitude towards a lot of things that made it cool in some ways. Like we talked about the metal stuff mm-hmm. uh, and the branding, which was cool but the way in which i think it is like lowest common denominator on a lot of experiential like ad- I mean, this is a hospitality podcast right like brewery hospitality fucking sucks compared to any other aspect of beverage and food and like as somebody who has worked really really hard to make that part of the space a lot better like i'm overwhelmed by how bad it is and pervasively so um so that is a very good point <laughs> And I mean, don't get me wrong. Anybody who's out there who's putting in the work and doing a good job and is feeling like right now, like, hey, we do it well. Like, you probably do. There are some wonderful examples of it. Um but on average, man, crap yeah. movies are terrible yeah. at it. Right.
1: Danny's the giant Jenga champion of Chicagoland. <laughs> so don't take it personally, yeah, bud. Yeah, I got this
0: giant Jenga jersey on. Oh wait, Now people can see me. But... I made the uniforms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there you go. Spontum- a, gig's <laughs> a gig's a gig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right.
1: It pays the bills. Well, all right, Michael, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining yeah, us thank today. You. I appreciate it.
0: And that concludes our conversation with Michael Kaiser. Thanks for listening. And uh we'll check in with you next week. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And even
1: drop a review. People drop could a review, drop review. You know,
0: drop a sweet review. We
1: are we're currently accepting all positive reviews. Yep.
0: Negative reviews, just negative reviews, save just your
1: breath. Actually email us yeah. at joinerspod <laughs> we'll at gmail. That. Com, and we'll read them. We'll fix whatever you don't like. <laughs> Yep. And and we'll take it from there. We'll yeah, get it to right. where you
0: like it. And we are on Instagram at Joiners Pod. We're doing reels. We're starting to be a little bit more active with video content. We're reeling out of control, man. Dude, out of control. And we're doing cocktails every week, throwback photos. Yeah, we, we should yada. probably even mention
1: shifties, the cocktail,
0: yep, cocktail, cocktail reel, so you can follow along at home. Yep. Shifties release on Fridays, not necessarily every Friday that we have been during the past few um but anyways thanks for listening we'll check you next week this episode was produced by matt haddock and music by captain cuts see you next week